I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club, episode 63. Oh, I'm feeling a, a bit, big one. I'm feeling a bit concerned about the microphone here. Like we've mentioned many times that the microphones are on these tripods that somehow are the, are the least stable objects I've ever had to assemble. So I'm yeah. just, it, it fell over while we were setting up the episode. I'm just, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling comfortable with it in front of uh, me yeah, right now. Yeah, a triangle is the most stable, you would think. I think, base, but not the way these triangles no. are constructed. We know that from U12 two-unit math, <laughs> which we both did together. Um, yeah, there's almost like a yaw on this microphone. Oh, that was good. <laughs> yaw was good. Yaw was good. Uh, funny, I was also thinking too, like, it, feels, it still feels strange to be recording with light in the evening. Yeah, I know. And I realised, I, I think this is why, that most of our podcast recording has been done in winter. Because yes. you know, the last lockdown, like we kind of lost momentum with the last lockdown. That hit on the cusp of spring, I think. That's right. And we started in winter. So I feel, I feel like it, I could be totally wrong. Yeah. But my sense is that we actually haven't done that much podcasting in daylight saving hours. Yes, yes. We so, definitely associate podcasting with a seasonal phenomenon. That's true, yeah. Yeah. So it just feels, I feel like everything feels off podcasting with light yeah. around. Yeah. 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 So, well, we're, I guess, undergoing a transportative moment. and. Yep. On that note, for a nice segue... I'm going to be honest, not one of your best segues, but like, it'll do, it'll do. You, you've had better moments with the segue, but look, that's, that's fine. Let's, it is what it is. It is what it is. Let's just move on. Let's just move on. Yeah, so on to uh, transportative moments. We've got Shantaran. Are you staying with the transportative segue? Okay, all right. Okay. It's, bra- it's brave. That's brave. I went for it. Yep. Stuck to, stuck to my guns. I can respect that. <laughs> so Shantaran is a new uh, drama uh, thriller TV series. Um, it was inspired by the very famous uh, novel. Uh, would you describe it as a cult novel? It's, it was almost broke through to the mainstream by Gregory David Roberts. Funny, this novel has a particular resonance for me because you know that from um, 2003 to 2010, I worked at Berkeley Books, Leichhardt, yeah. you know, yeah. when I was at uni and yeah. then during my thesis. And this was... So I have a really clear sense of all the ma- major blockbusters at that time. Yeah. And this was one of the first ones. So did it come out 03, 04? Uh, it came out, yes, uh, in the early aughts. In the early aughts. Yeah, so like, yeah. but it was huge when I was there, like, you know, for a good year or two. 2003. Yeah, well, exactly. So it was, uh, I think actually when I was at Berkeley, it was the first huge bestseller, the first book event mm. while I was there. So there was a time when, you know, for weeks, everybody was asking about it. It was, you know, and, you know, it was on every shelf displayed somewhere. Mm. And in my mm. mind, the cover is just, I can see it in front of me right now. Yeah, so it had a very evocative cover of a series of Indian doors, something of those lines. Yeah, the one yeah. I'm thinking of was like, it was bright turquoise and red. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, it's funny. To, and it's funny because I was reading into this and apparently they, they tried to option it as a film shortly after, mm. like in the next mm. year or it's two. It's had a really long, complicated development pro, uh, process. It's, and It's one of the things I find most uncanny when like, a film comes out that's actually been in development for like 20 years yeah. or a series comes out. So it's, yeah. just, it's weird to me to think of like that was, continuity. I know. And, yeah. and all the, the big names that were attached to it, Johnny Depp, yeah. uh, Joel Edgerton. Yeah, Mira Nair, Peter yeah. Weir. Like yeah. it's, it's just weird. Like cause in my mind, it is so much of a time and place, that book. It's strange to think there's this been thread linking it to the current TV series yeah. like for basically 20 years. Yeah, so I do wonder whether a novel like this or a TV series like this has name recognition mm. as a result of that novel or whether that novel's... You know, prominence is, has now receded. But also, how how huge would it have been if it had come out at the time? Absolutely. Like that would yes, have been, a film that would have been yeah, within massive. three or four years. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you familiar with the novel? Kind, like, kind of. Like, I mean, I never read it, but it's kind of funny. Like, like a lot of other books that came out around that time, I kind of picked up a lot of it by osmosis. Yeah. Just by virtue of selling it. Yeah. Of being always asked what it was about, of having people, often customers, tell me what it was about <laughs> while I was trying to serve other customers. Like it was just, and, and, and members of staff read it and wrote okay. reviews of it. So okay. I kind of picked up 
quite a bit of it along, okay. but no, I never read it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually have read this. And, okay. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I quite like travel literature. Yep. And um, this is travel adjacent, given its autobiographical. I'm not, it's, provenance is a bit uncertain. Well, that's here. something I'm curious, like not having read it. Like I, I always thought it was mainly a memoir, like a disguised memoir. Like, is it, or is it? How much of it is fictionalized? Yeah. That that is that is something I always wondered because it does seem it does seem certainly. Like it might have some basis in truth, but it feels like it's a little bit too bit good lurid, to be true. Bit lurid. Yeah. And it's funny, and I'm actually getting a flashback now, that this was actually a big time when you had these kind of fictionalised tell-all books. So there was one called The Bride Strip Bear. Mm. Remember, it was by Anonymous, and it was just about a kind of very candid account of a marriage. But you had all these books that were coming out about the same time, or like A, a, a Million Little Pieces, was yeah. it? James, so like just memoirs that were... It, like lurid memoirs that felt slightly fictionalised. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it was that moment the, this was the, a part of. Like intense sort of self-disclosure yeah. genre. It's, and um, Shantaram is definitely, the, the addiction yeah. memoir was really big in the 90s and aughts. And this um, is adjacent, this is a, a you know, addiction memoir adjacent. Okay, I remember, was it a million little pieces, a thousand little pieces? A million little pieces, this is the one James, like James Frey. Frey. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, mm. So this, this um, story basically um, was, was based on Robert's own life mm-hmm. um, about a bank robber uh, who's imprisoned in Australia, who managed to escape and then flees to the country of India and finds refuge, solace um, and wisdom. Mm. Well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the series actually... Let's get, let's get too carried away. <laughs> the series um, is actually um, directed uh, by quite a famous Australian director, Justin Kurzel, mm. um, who is most famous from, from Snowtown, mm. a very, you know, harrowing yeah. um, movie adaptation and Barat Naluri who's the um, subcontinental uh, director attached to this um, it has a variety of showrunners and recently premiered on Apple TV it does feel like it it meets a lot of the aesthetic criteria for an Apple TV series Absolutely. very prestige yep very uh, that contrast and the high key lighting yeah. low key yeah, lighting really revels in the that sheen it has that yep. Apple sheen, sheen doesn't it um, it works nicely to capture his sense of because I was reading about the book, and I understand that like part of part of what was acclaimed about the book was the kind of way it painted a picture of Bombay, like mm. in the early eighties. And mm. the sheen of the series captures his sense of being immersed in this exotic world, yeah, really well. I thought, yeah, yeah. So I think um, this pilot is interesting in the sense that half of it is a is a prison ba- prison break mm. um, show, and half of it is kind of. Immersion in a foreign culture. How, how did you, as someone who yeah. loves all all kind of prison related genres, how did you feel about starting with the prison break? And I then was, not I thought it was pretty effective. I thought this was mm. was pretty well directed. I mean, mm. it didn't you know belabor the logistics of it because obviously mm. that was not its primary concern. Not the point. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was pretty effective, and I think mm. like most Apple TV series, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully shot. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very well acted. It has. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. We'll come, very, we'll, we'll come back to that. It, it has very high production values. Mm. Um, I think one of the reservations uh, some people might have had, and what might slightly date this as a story, mm. is this whole white savior narrative, and sure. in particular the sort of over identification with the inverted commas native culture. Mm. So the I mean, protagonist I... in this case, you know, becomes immersed in mm. uh, the culture of. Bombay and really almost over identifies with it and becomes you know more native than the natives themselves mm. 
So I don't know whether the same sort of narrative trajectory would fly in this day and age. Yeah, but... it's funny because I, I, I had mixed feelings about this too. I, I actually thought, so the bits I thought worked well, like I thought the opening prison scene was really good. Mm. Like I thought that was really suspenseful and just kind of well done. And the fact it was a true story made it really interesting. I, I also really, I mean, I know what you mean about the white saviour thing, but I just kind of, I felt like, it actually did capture in quite an authentic way, I guess, what an Australian backpacking community would have felt yeah. like at the time. And I thought I thought that the atmosphere of, you know, like he did live there for many years. So, mm. like, there's some authenticity to that. So I thought the atmosphere of Bombay and the kind of feeling of being a, a backpacker or an itinerant traveller mm. was, was authentic and was really good. I don't know. I just actually found that, like, the main character, at least the way the series presented it was not that interesting to me. Mm. Like he was, he's a pretty, like he's kind of like, he's got chill vibes, but he's not, he's not that much of a character. And it's almost like, I thought it was telling, like there's a, there's a crime narrative that comes in pretty quickly that forces him to put on a persona Mm. to recover, to recover a sex worker from a brothel basically. Mm. And I thought when he put on the persona, he actually really came alive and that was a really dynamic scene. So I thought it started Mm. and ended with a really dynamic scene and in that last dynamic scene, he's putting on this personality. But I, I don't know. I just I found his character kind of a bit diffuse and a bit empty in a way that didn't really. And you, you talk about good acting, but I mean, this this felt to me like what it was, like a British actor putting on an Aussie accent. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was really obvious. Question. I thought that was that's really obvious. Yeah. How did you rate the accent out of five? I, I thought it was bad. Like I thought, it, <laughs> I thought it was obvious. Like I was like, I was like, are they? Because the first thing I thought was this: this this bloke sounds English. <laughs> and then I was like, are they, are they trying to capture like a like an eighties Australian accent? And I was like, oh no, he's just English. Like, <laughs> well, I thought he might have had an English background. Oh, maybe, yeah. You know, emigrated to Australia, and his accent being somewhere in between. You know, I, I, I remember like looking it up. Mid, I, what would you describe that mid Indian Ocean accent? Yeah, <laughs> and like it was just. I also thought that just the, the voiceover was not that good. Like, I found that I found the voiceover was just like him, like not not exactly trite, but just a bit vacuous like a bit empty mm. so i don't know it was weird it had this really great opening scene and once he put on this personality at the end it really picked up gear and that that crime narrative was interesting and i thought it did mm. yeah, a really good job of capturing the texture and the feeling of being like an extra australian expatriate um and the connections that could emerge but i don't know i just found it a bit a bit empty like mm. i didn't mm. I, I, and it's funny because you'd also think that such a long book would work really well with serialization mm. it seems like it's made to be a television series mm. i don't know like yeah I, I i agree with you in that sense it probably might have made a more effective film yeah because you got a better sense of the arc of the character yeah and because the character is really basically a site where trauma has happened yeah. he's working through his addiction he's working through yeah you know, this act of violence that was performed on him, he's obviously working through. Yeah, so it, what, it isn't... So, in the book, so it turns out he was tortured in prison yeah. by a police officer. Yeah. i got to say, I thought all that stuff was a bit hokey. Yeah. Like, the way the show did it, like, obviously the story isn't hokey, but the way it did it with the flashbacks and even the stuff about his past, he obviously was an interesting character and had a complex backstory, but just, I didn't... I just didn't feel it folded it in that well. Like mm. maybe another way of saying what I mean is I thought it was really well directed, but it wasn't that well written at times mm. Mm. or acted by the main, the support characters yeah, sure. were so fine. The main character, Lynn, is played by Charlie Hunnam. Yep. Uh, famous British actor. Mm. Um, yeah, queer, queer as folk. Yeah. He's a, yeah. And, and what, Sons of Anarchy? Yep, Son, yep, Sons of Anarchy. He has a bit of a um, an everyman vibe. Mm. It's a, a little bit of a kind of, 
very sanguine type personality very like you say a bit of a blank canvas maybe that's the tension like the story and the texture are really interesting but the everyman i don't know it just was so flat mm. that it just, it's almost was... like this character should have been a bit more manic more edgy more twitchy like yeah. a nick cage type yeah. performance <laughs> yeah. might have been yeah that'd be good enlivened this series it's funny like there are all these moments of crisis too that like there's that scene where he's apprehended by cops on the street and then just kind of goes nowhere well, there's mm. like a scene, like a heroin overdose, and it just kind of goes nowhere. Like, it was like the series didn't know how to kind of balance, like, the vibrancy of the place and the narrative with, like, his chillness. Mm. It's like he was too, he was too chill for the story. <laughs> it, was just, it was like it was too much chill vibes for the story. So, yeah. like, I, I just didn't think, I just didn't find him all that interesting. Mm. I didn't really get mm. it. Mm. Yeah, you, look, you, you mm. might be right. And this was a series I, I was really hoping to like. I did actually enjoy the book. Mm. Um the book is full of long quasi-philosophical treatises. Mm. Um, it's quite aphoristic, you know, mm. there's a lot of, a lot of aphorisms, very aphorism heavy. This doesn't quite rely mm. on that as much, which mm. I think was a strength, although there are some scenes where he's talking to a former professor and there's a lot of, you know, deep and meaningful conversations about like, life. And, it's a bit like ponderous. Yeah, it like can, it's, be a, can be a little ponderous. It's a bit, it's a, yeah. Yeah, so it's... Again, so it's faultless in terms of its production, like all Apple TV series, but perhaps it lacks that certain mm. je ne sais quoi well, that elevates it to, you know, must-see television. Well, also, like, I think sometimes having that perfect production can work against you. Like, this was a show where I felt like, given the main actor and the character, all the perfect production ended up doing was making it feel a bit inert. Mm. Like, it's like it looks beautiful, but with no... Like even the images aren't jagged enough to kind of pull you in. Mm. So mm. I got to say, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hard out in the in the sense of disliking it, but I'm I'm probably a hard out in the sense that I cannot imagine watching twelve hours. <laughs> like you know, like this is a long, it's you know, for the Shantaram completists. Yeah, I mean, and look, I'm not saying anything about the book. Like the book was a bestseller. The books, you know, I know a lot of people who told me it was great. So it's no, no shade on the book, but just as an adaptation, this mm. it doesn't feel very vibrant mm. or urgent, mm. and just. You know, like, it's also, it's an hour-long pilot. Like, you want to have some, yeah, that, it was too, Com- dif- too diffuse, yeah, I thought. Yeah, compelling and hook. Too, yeah, I actually didn't find it that pretentious mm. or ponderous. I just mm. found it so diffuse and kind of vacant at times. Mm. Mm. It was just a bit, like, empty. Yeah. yeah. You had moments that were really good. Yeah, and that's true. There are a lot of a lot of different narrative strands that I think it might mm. have trouble balancing. But it might get better, too. Like, that was something yeah. else I thought. I thought, like, that scene at the end was really good. So I was like, well, maybe I can also say... If I hear that it gets a lot better, I might watch it. Like, mm. I can actually see this could become really good mm. once mm. you get into it. Yeah. I, I also just didn't think the lead actor was that good an actor. Like, I have to mm. say, like, he's he's got a kind of rugged look that mm. means means he works Charlie Hunnam in certain roles. Um, but I don't know. Like, I just I don't find him that charismatic, mm. generally. And I don't, think, I don't think he was here either. So I don't know if it was him, the character, or the writing. But, yeah, like... 12 hours with him could, 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 could be a lot. It could be a lot. Yeah, look, I, I think this is this is certainly like a, an Apple product and there's something so beautiful about the way that Apple yeah, you know, curates their series. They're all, they're all very prestige They're all released. I agree. You know, there's, there's not that similar level of jumble that there is on the Netflix platform. Or, or, or it's like kind of being back in those early days of Netflix, which will be a nice segue into our next show, actually. But it's back, like being back in those early days of Netflix when it's like you were just absolutely astonished to see that level of high def on your TV. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. It, it is incredible to yeah. see. And when, when it when it is paired with a series, it's really incredible. Like um, Severance. Like Severance, like 
servant or are you, are you on the bad sisters bus at uh, all yet? not, not okay. as yet it's just finished because that's i mean it's that's also i think incredible and weirdly although bad sisters is kind of it's, it's a bit more of a light-hearted comedy it's still very apple tv plus it's full of like beautiful shots of ireland like it's very place bound. it's very place bound yeah like all of these shows are very place bound yeah they are so that i really liked yeah i just just yeah just the main character really yeah which is yeah mm. yeah look i think maybe this is one of those series where perhaps read the book mm. first and, yeah. and see you know if this brings it you know to life if you will um yeah look i i think it's i think it's fine mm. it's perfectly fine <laughs> it's absolutely fine i think that that's good Okay, on to our next show this week. Um, so <laughs> I have to say from the outset, this show has become an absolute obsession for me. It's uh, This is your jam. This is my jam. I, I've been talking to everyone I, I know about this show, recommending it just to everybody. Um, it's The Watcher, which is a new Ryan Murphy show. So, I, I mean, the, the basic premise of it is it's suburban horror, so I love mm. suburban horror. Mm. Um, it's based on two discrete crimes that happen in the same town in New Jersey, uh, Westfield. I haven't actually looked into the crimes. One of them I know quite oh, so well. It, so it's literally said in the same they were, town. They, they were both in the same town, right. is my understanding. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, one of the crimes is about a, a family annihilation that's quite a famous crime in New Jersey. The other one is about a family who started receiving threatening letters. Mm. But I haven't looked... The first one is pretty famous. The second one I haven't looked into much because I don't want to spoil the show, mm. I guess. It's based on an article... Um, for New York's The Cut, it is. Were you aware of this article? I was, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I haven't read it yet because I just want to keep it. But yeah, I know. Okay. Um, and the basic setup is <laughs> it's clearly not based on any sort of reality that that you or I know. <laughs> well, it's, it's, well, let's come on to that in a moment. It's definitely got that Murphy signature. Um, the basic premise is you have a couple, Nora and Dean Brannock, who uh, finally have you know made the decision to move to the suburbs and the city. They buy a huge. They're played by Bobby Cannavale and Naomi Watts. They buy a huge house in a beautiful precinct. They they sink all their money in the house, mm. um, and immediately they start getting <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of conversations about this house. Yeah, so like I'm uh, <laughs> leveraging everything to get this house. Well, it's almost like by buying their house, they buy the classic Netflix aesthetic. So I kind of think like in its classic phase. Netflix was all about foliage and glass, like trees and windows was like the Netflix look. And so sure enough, the the episode opens with, there's no credits, it just opens with them in the car, driving to the house, looking at the windscreen and Mm. trees in suburbia. And, you know, all the kind of everything they love about the house, the tropes of Netflix suburbia. So they keep on going on about how there's a lake behind the house. Like, it's like, how can I not buy it? There's a lake. So like, it's like all, all, what they're buying is basically the Netflix look, I kind of feel with the house. Yeah. Um, but soon they start to get threatening letters, quite creepy letters. Yeah, um, and uh, the letters were written. The letter and, and something I think that <laughs> I think you need to discourse on the on the role of letters yep. in true crime well, after yeah, Jean Benet. Absolutely. Um, and part of what's effective about the pilot is they only get two letters in the pilot. It doesn't. It doesn't kind of. It doesn't go overboard with it. And the letters basically say, you know, you're being watched. The house has been watched for you know, 100 years by generations of custodians and there is a horror in the house and it implies some kind of blood sacrifice. Yeah, there's a um, thirst, the house is a thirst for blood. The house has a thirst for blood. And so immediately this produces a kind of crisis for the Bobby Cannavale character, right? Because he's the ultimate kind of suburban patriarchy, 
you know, he's he's the father of the house in a kind of twisted kind of way. So, you mm. know, he has he sleeps with his wife while the kids are in the next room, you know, like but at the same time gives his daughter a hard time for wearing lipstick because people might see her through the window. So he's your kind of classic, you know, like overbearing, overprotective suburban father. Mm. And he has this kind of traumatic and you know, and buying the house is meant to be the kind of apotheosis of mm. his suburban mm. fatherhood. Could this show be an allegory of the horror of being being in debt? being tied to a mortgage well and also and also i think it's kind of like it's like a kind of, it's like a queer it's it's a, it's a queer horror of suburbia mm. and what suburbia oh, represents definitely. so he's it's, it's very campy so he is you know he's like this it's like this patriarchal achievement he's bought the house he's got the family he's monitoring what his daughter does and then the horror is that he realizes that in the eyes of the watcher he and his family are only squatters mm. and that the house has this completely different custodianship mm. which he can't know and which exceeds him so it's it's a great premise of like yeah, like the kind of, and you know, the suburban father mm. securing everything and then all of a sudden realising that there is this completely different conception of home ownership mm. that transcends his hold on the property. Mm. And it's a great ending. It has a great conclusion where you know, he, he gets a second letter and in a kind of montage sequence just runs around the house basically trying to securitise every sight line, every window, every door, runs into the garden, tries to kind of comprehend every sight line, then ends up in the, in the, in the road and, the, and it cuts there. So... Mm. It's, it's a great premise, but I mean, I think it's not just horror. So I, it's Ryan Murphy. And I kind of feel like, remember Ryan Murphy moved to Netflix just as American Crime Story was peaking with that second season. Mm. So Ryan Murphy, I think, had made the best work of his career with American Crime Story seasons one and two, mm. and then moved to Netflix. And It's been a bit of a dumpster fire since. Well, I, I just think that it, he, it took him a while to resume his flow. And I mm. think he had a couple of Netflix series that were pretty average. But I feel like between this and Dharma, yeah. he's really found his voice again. And what I think works here, and I think at his best, I think um, Ryan Murphy's great at two things, right? He's great at suspense and he's great at absurdity. And often those two things aren't calibrated that well mm. because they are so different in mm. some ways. But mm. I think this series absolutely nails it. So you have these, you know, a lot of the series is just like classical suspense, but then it's intercut with these extraordinary like moments of high absurdity um, in a way that reminded me of like, say, great 80s horror. Like so much great 80s and 90s horror is exactly that. Like it's like horror intercut with comedy, absurdity, camp. Yeah. And the two feed into each other. Like the two. Mm. So the absurdity here... Up, in part comes from this incredible Greek chorus of neighbours played by Margot Martindale, Mia Farrow and uh, Jennifer Coolidge. So Jennifer Coolidge plays a real estate agent who sells in the property. Uh, Margot Martindale plays a really hostile neighbour and Mia Farrow plays another kind of crazy neighbour. So you have this incredible suburban horror that's really effective, but then you have these neighbours who seem to be part of the, you know, part of the conspiracy but are also just incredible comic relief on their own terms. They are, and, and they they, are certainly. They are so amazing that, you know, like, is laugh out loud funny? Like, I mm. found there were scenes here that I was just absolutely, like, hysterical. And so, you know, there's incredible an incredible balance between the kind of, yeah, the, the suspenseful and the comic parts of the series. And it makes you realise that, like, you know, Ryan Murphy has such a great taste for the... Like, he's great at hagsploitation. But, he, <laughs> yes. but, he's, but, but, but he's got a great taste. He did feud, didn't he? Which was, he all, did which feud, was all about... All about... All about hagsploitation. All about kind of yeah. historicising that. Yeah. But he has such a great taste for ageing generally, I think. And maybe there's something queer about that, like ageing outside of respectability or outside of normal, you know, social structure. So even Margot Martindale's husband, like, the old guy, is like... He's kind of... A, he often plays, like, the schmuck. He's like a kind of side character, often plays the schmucks. There's all these kind of... And 
Mia Farrow's son plays a kind of deranged character who yes. who played. We'll get back to the dumb. We'll get to the dumbwaiter in a moment. But he plays around in the family home's dumbwaiter quite a bit. So mm. there's just this kind of great alternation, mm. I think, between absurdity and comedy. And I think it kind of shows that like. If Ryan Murphy just puts in a little bit of understatement, he can be amazing. Because mm. I think mm. the, the problem with him is the absurdity sometimes, it, it, it peaks so quickly that it mm. leaves nothing but burlesque. Mm. That's and that, true. And I don't find that that engaging. Like it just no. becomes... No, it's it's best when he's doing, he's 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 working within a genre, mm. but he's looking at it awry. Mm. So there's something, it's almost like he's querying the genre. Yeah, absolutely. And he's querying it, the pitch. And there's, there's just, it's a little touches here. And I think this, yeah, it doesn't, mm. this works really effectively as a self-contained, um, you know, horror slash thriller. Mm. Almost more like a thriller than a horror, mm. a horror series. Um, just with slight little permutations that add that flavor. So mm. really expressive acting, um, mm. overacting in some ways by the, by the, uh, the neighbors or the, the, the absurdity of the, um, mentally impaired neighbour riding the dumbwaiter and just the, the insistence on the dumbwaiter, these, these avenues of ingress into the house. And this is, I mean, this is, the dumbwaiter is at the centre of it all, right? Like, this this has to set the a Guinness, a Guinness record, Guinness World Record, for the number of times a dumbwaiter is mentioned in a show. I mean, it's like, so the house has a dumbwaiter at its heart and just, there is constant talk about this dumbwaiter. Like, there's constant conversation about this dumbwaiter. Yeah. And the best monologue, like the most sublime monologue, comes after Mia Farrow's son is found in the dumbwaiter and terrifies one of the children. And then Mia Farrow gives this long, like, you know, speech about, well, you know, every previous owner of the house loved that dumbwaiter and every previous owner loved that he loved to ride in the dumbwaiter <laughs> and they love, like, they love that he rode in the dumbwaiter whenever he wanted without giving any warnings. Like, the dumbwaiter just becomes, I guess, a kind of the nexus between everything that's scary and everything that's absurd. It's yeah. absurd. But yeah. you're right. Even the, the, uh, the son... Um, the the pet that's that's tortured is is a ferret. Mm. There's something just slightly awry, something bizarre and um, hyperbolic mm. about this register. But like you said, it's a little bit dialed down from the, the more the, the excesses of mm. the Ryan Murphy estate, which I think probably American Horror Story is well, a little bit guilty of. Because this feels a little bit like I mean, I really like the the first season of American Horror Story, but this almost feels like a, a redo of that. Like it's mm. a very similar premise, like a family mm. moving into a house. The house is haunted by a kind of presence they can't understand. But I think, I mean, I really like that first season, but I think here the absurdity and suspense is modulated even more effectively than in the first season of American Horror Story. Yeah. So it kind of feels like it's actually almost like a reboot of American Horror Story in a different guise. Um, but yeah, like it, it is, and it is just, it's really interesting conceptually too, because like one of the paradoxes of the show is that, you know, the couple come to suburbia. Again, like there's this kind of real. It's, it's queer in the sense that it takes this kind of suburban nuclear unit and kind of looks at it awry mm. or sees it as kind of other or as alien, mm. but also challenges its kind of, its cohesion. So mm. like one of the things that happens is they, they come to the suburbs expecting to have this new incredible bounded property, but actually the property in the suburbs turns out to be more porous mm. than their property back mm. in the city. Mm. And so there's a great scene where the Margot Martindale neighbor, they find her gardening, you know, picking a rug, another, another great absurd scene. Like they find her harvesting arugula in their garden. And when they ask her what's happening, she just blithely points out, well, you know, the arugula migrated here, you know, 50 <laughs> years ago. I, there's, there's a passage between the two house, you know, the two gardens that's been there for 30 years. You should know that. So, yeah. you know, the Mia Farrow character wanders into their place randomly from time to time. They find her son and the dumbwaiter. So actually at the very moment they kind of move to suburbia, their world becomes more porous yeah. rather than more contained in a way that I think is really effective. Yeah. 
absolutely and, yeah. yeah and it just it just works really nicely in that way kind of spatially mm. and yeah i think horror thriller as well is a genre that's ripe for yeah you know that slight different hyperbolic perspective like mm. you said because it, it, it is not even latent but it's mm. you know it's omnipresent in that in the, the subgenres of horror especially this 80s style yeah satirical horror or just and satire and horror always seem seem quite a good, good bedfellows yeah or just kind of horror that kind of it's like really really effective horror like is kind of is often aware of the inane pleasure of horror itself mm. do you know what i mean like mm. it doesn't it doesn't have pretensions to be more than horror yeah and that's often what makes it able to be profound yeah. horror but like i think horror is almost one of those genres that, that can work as pure horror and also metafictional horror yep. simultaneously mm. without one detracting from the other but why are they nicely paired or balanced i agree but i think also because because horror taps into something that is so primal and so inane about cinematic enjoyment and about pl the pleasure of like watching film and television yeah. A, a really dedicated authentic horror show almost the horror scenes produce a kind of contagious spectacular pleasure mm. that filters over and creates a kind of just a taste for absurdity and hyperbole and just the pleasures of spectacle elsewhere yeah. so it's like yeah. it reminds you of like say some of the best friday the 13th films where yeah. the horror is like so the spectacle of the horror is so visceral that it creates this yeah, contagious joy and spectacle and, yeah. you know, entertainment for its own yeah. sake. And the conventions, the conventions and tropes are so well-worn mm. that they're revivified by this really hyperbolic mm. treatment. And I think, yeah, so much of the pleasure of, of horror is just seeing these these tropes, conventions being recycled mm. um, and the slight variations on the theme. So seeing seeing them being brought in this unusual potpourri of, of conventions mm. um, here is... I don't know, like, uh, yeah, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Ryan Murphy, mm. but I agree, definitely Dharma worked, and this and this this also works because it, it does also work as a pure thriller. Mm. Um, and the I think the the creepier kernel in this series is is the letters. Yeah, I agree. The, that, the that's the part writing. that's scary. Yeah. yeah, and that's genuinely scary yeah, when it does it's happen. Genuinely unnerving. And I feel like there is again, there's something in that that is that is is a queer lens. Like it's it's that sense of well, what would it take? to unseat this kind of suburban fatherhood, mm. what it would take, what it would take to make it, to terrify it, is the idea of there being a different custodian, mm. of someone else having mm. a prior claim. Mm. It, it's funny too, because I think in, in the next couple of weeks, at some point, we'll be doing American Horror Story NYC. There's a new season of American Horror Story that's oh, come yeah. out. But it feels like American Horror Story now, like 10, 12 years after the fact, is kind of in a late phase, like of pure hyperbole, mm. like of pure mm. burlesque, pure grotesque. So, whereas this feels like... Murphy returning to his roots mm. and revising. It reminded me of Candy, like you mm, know the scenes. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it, Candy was less absurd, but it was the same kind of like mm. denatured suburban. Yeah, I and this particular the suburban horror, in particular the haunted house genre, is quite unusual. And I suppose this is really uncovering something that's late in that genre, mm. and that is the dilemma that every family faces. Mm. It's a great house, great property, mm. but it's haunted. Yeah, what yeah. What do we do? Do we leave? Do we stay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't pass up this op this opportunity. And There's almost like a kind of paranoia of of economic immobility mm. that's latent in this genre and mm. you see i guess maybe it's why it occurs during periods of financial downturn downturns and and crisis and there's an underlying undergirding this is a kind of yeah a crisis of a lack of social mobility manifested by the the property market so mm. you, you see that uh you know bear itself borne out in this in this to an almost ex absurd extent mm. given how much you know, talk about property there is in the mm. dream house and how leveraged he is. But, um, I th but I think also 
bound up with a particular heteronormative model of the nuclear couple. So, mm. like, this is a couple... Part of what makes the show entertaining is, like, this is a couple that you're not particularly rooting for. Like, mm. the kind of couple who call each other Mr and Mrs Braddock. Yeah. Like, they're so... It isn't just property, but it's the good life as something that's figured in terms of heteronormativity, yeah. is my sense of it. So, and that's where the queer angle comes in. So the series almost takes a kind of a kind of wicked delight in presenting us with this kind of suburban patriarch figure... I mean, it's funny, it reminds me that there's, um, there's a George Romero film, uh, Creep Show, which is like an anthology film. Right. And it starts with a father telling his son, you know, you may not go outside. You, you know, just, and then the son's like, down with fathers, down with fathers, down with fathers. And that chant brings in the film. Right. And it feels like it's something like, is he like a gleeful, like, you know, a gleeful kind of thumbing yeah. the nose at paternal authority. Yeah, I think which that's I, true. Which I think is bound up with the property stuff because, you know, for the Bobby Cannavale character, like securitising his property and securitising his family are kind of one and the same thing. So, mm. like, there's this, you know, one of the things that becomes really traumatic to him is that the guy, the young African-American guy that he hires to set up the surveillance system around his house starts... Hitting uh, on his daughter. Hitting on his daughter yeah. and embarking upon a relationship with his daughter. So that's the point where... The effort to you know to kind of secure property and secure family breaks down, mm. and so and I just think that there is, in a way, like the show is almost like a queer fantasy of what it would take to unseat this model of kind of heterosexual authority mm. and heterosexual mm. masculinity, and all the is, incursions that are made by very unconventional yeah. forms of kind of alternative family dynamics, yeah. and especially femininity. Yeah. So you have this kind of guy who's you know really policing his wife and his daughter in particular mm. and yet all these forms of monstrous abject disavowed femininity come into the mm. picture and keep mm. on mm. encroaching upon the property boundaries i mean it almost feels like mm. the watcher is like a kind of queer mockery of yeah. the family like yeah, you know you, you you think that you you know you have a kind of claim to permanence by virtue of having a family and owning a property and being in the suburbs but there are other forms of continuity and other forms of sociality that you can't possibly understand. Like you could see, you could see the watcher. Like the watcher invokes a kind of organisation. You could see it being some kind of queer organisation that has had some other kind of claim to the property. So mm. I feel like that's part of what makes it so acute. I think and so pointed. There is that kind of real sense that, like, the very attempt to securitise the property from the outset is. Yeah, it's doomed to failure. Yeah, and he's a kind of he's almost a perversion in itself. Yeah. It's like this kind of, you know, heteronormative perversion in yeah. itself. That's so there's there's a weird thing where the monster is kind of the Bobby Cannavale character yeah. in some ways. Yeah, true, so, true. And that may well be I guess the trajectory of this narrative. Well, like that. Have you seen any more of it? I have not. This is not a huge giveaway, but there's a scene where Bobby Cannavale is is confronted by the previous occupant of the house, one of many, and it turns out he was a family annihilator. He killed his old family when they didn't live up to his right. expectations of them. It's not a major part of it, but that kind of feels like very in tune with the show where you have this kind of suburban father figure who, as soon as things don't fit his fantasy, would rather annihilate everything mm. than admit, you know that his property has been porously, you know, compromised. So mm. it, it does feel like there is this kind of full circle thing where what it's kind of interrogating is precisely the authority that the Bobby Cannavale character needs to have in the first place, mm. but in a way that is very, still very suspenseful. And, and, and the absurdity is partly the absurdity of his mm. his pretensions to authority. Yeah. I sense is where it comes from. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the scenes here are uh, laugh, out fu- laugh out loud funny, um, and the next scene is is very suspenseful and, and creepy, eerie. So, it, it does thread the needle and between these these genres. At times, I felt almost like, effectively. It was like a folk horror vibe. It's like folk horror mm. in suburbia. Mm. So, like you, you're, they arrive in suburbia expecting 
normal people like them, but actually there's all these relics of an older age mm. and the, the house itself is a relic of this older 100-year trajectory of watches. Yeah. It's like seeing when Mia Farris talking about how he, he can't cut down the tree in his property because the tree has life, the tree has spirit. <laughs> like it feels there's a kind of folk horror element yeah. there as well. Yeah, there is, yeah. It just, it's just very deft. Like it just feels like it understands a whole lot of different genres of horror. It has a really interesting spin on them. And I mean, another way of putting this, I feel like in recent years, horror has become very suspicious of pleasure. You know, horror has to be about trauma. It has to be about grief. It has to be mm. about... It has to have some kind of overtly profound mm. meaning. Elevated horror. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was a very funny satire of elevated horror where it said, you know, traditional horror, you know, the horrific object could mean multiple different mm. things. Elevated horror, the, the horrific object just means one thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a metaphor. Well, exactly. That's exactly. that specific thing. That's what I mean. So, like, <laughs> you, there, there is a real tendency towards that kind of horror, um, which is which I think... In some ways, it's all about divesting horror of pleasure, of mm. being anxious about horror having any kind of, you know, illicit pleasure to it. Mm. Whereas this show goes the other way; like it completely embraces the inane pleasure of horror, and in doing so, builds this incredible sense of, you know, absurdity and hyperbole and spectacle generally. So it's just, it's such a. I saw this after watching Amsterdam. Have you seen Amsterdam, the David O. Russell film? Uh, I have not. Oh, it is so, it is like one of the t- most tedious films I've ever seen. <laughs> really? Just so devoid of any kind of pleasure, like just so boring. Right. And just to come back and watch this after it, I was like, this is like the perfect bath. the perfect counterpoint. So this yeah. has become your warm bath. It is. Yeah. I, I'm absolutely. I think about it all day. I'm obsessed with it. I think it's and you know it's funny. Like it's you it's, are the one who watches. I'm the one. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. The, the, yeah. And it's kind of funny. Like it's got quite poor reviews, but so did Dharma. And in both cases, I think the audience has kind of spoken yeah. in that, like... You Sometimes have, the audience knows best. Yeah. And it's the case where in both cases, the audience have have really kind of come on board with mm. the show. So mm. Yeah, you can't, can't ignore them. I'm, so look, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard in with... Yeah, I, I was expecting to really dislike this and I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, I mean... Okay, on to our um, third show this week. Yeah. Sorry if I sounded a little bit... Uh, uh, rushed at the end of the last section. We, we got interrupted by my dry cleaning coming yes. back midway through. We paused yes. it. The guy rang the doorbell several times. Those podcasters interrupt us. Yeah, exactly. So if I if I was a little bit uh, uh, rushed in the way I expressed, yeah. that's probably part of the reason why. I think we were, ironically we were talking about the watcher and incursions into, you know, the safe, familial I space, I feel suburbia, and all of a sudden we had uh, multiple rings at very late I feel a little bit like agitated because we're yeah. talking about this suburban horror show yeah. and then suddenly the doorbell rings I know, it's times. pretty close to Halloween too. I know. Um, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, third show this week is a show called Sherwood. Sherwood, yeah. British TV series mm. um, created by James Graham. So like his interesting career, like he went from the Bulldogs to, <laughs> to the Dragons and now he's, he's creating quality primetime TV. And it's got this, yeah, just really? a bit of a footy joke for those fans listening. Um, yeah. So the show is basically a British TV series, and mm. it opens with the uh, mining strikes mm. in Britain in the 1980s. Mm. Did you, uh, not knowing anything about this, did you think this was going to be a period piece in the 1980s? When I saw those mining strikes, I was like, oh, okay, so a 1980s series, and then just it just jumps forward. It's kind of funny. When you told me the title, I didn't know much else about it. I actually thought it was going to be a Robin Hood adaptation. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like some BBC does Robin Hood with naturalism. So I, I, I was even further off. Although there... The Robin Hood imagery does kind of come into it. Oh, definitely. Um, so it's basically... You're you know, definitely aware that there's a forest yes, surrounding this Nottingham Shire village. There's a lot of forest shots. Village. And the murder takes place with an arrow. That's true. So oh, okay. Oh, nice. Nice. Didn't, didn't, Motif. You didn't didn't pick up on the arrow, mate? Like, the arrow was... It was a crossbow, so... Oh, well, yeah, but yeah. still. Like, oh, right. I mean, it's it's an arrow. It's <laughs> Sherwood. It's, um, but basically, the plot, it's, it takes place... It opens with this really extraordinary historical footage of the mining strikes, like incredible mm. mass action and demonstrations mm. and picket lines. And then it jumps to the present, 
um, to the I guess the generation that lived through it. Sins of the father. Exactly. Um, they're now on their seventies and eighties, and it's it's basically about a whole lot of people whose lives have been touched by the mining strikes. So mm. the actual original mm. miners, and in particular the people who cross the picket lines. Yeah, the people, the scabs, the scabs, and the long term, you know psychological repercussions are being labelled and yep. continuing being labelled as a scab. But also the resentment of people who weren't scabs as well. Yeah, so yeah. we cut to about a modern day Sherwood and mm. basically the first episode is a whole lot of different intersecting narratives. So mm. the, the original miners, their children, their grandchildren. Mm. Um, and it all ends with a murder. It ends mm. with one of the... So we learn that the town is divided into two camps with two mm. different unions. Um, one union... The, the union most people belong to um, oppose the strikes mm. and one union, the union in the minority, were for the strikes. Mm. And there's a character played by... It revolves around a couple played by Helen Armstrong and Leslie uh, Manville. And the Helen Armstrong character was a member of that minority union group that were pro-strike. Mm. So he ha still has this kind of seething and very understandable resentment at the people who were scabs. Mm. And basically... The episode ends with him being shot with a crossbow mm. um, outside his house, mm. and it kind of promises the kind of I guess the promise of the series or the premise of the series is that the crime will in some way involve those old wounds. So yeah. I kind of I kind of thought that you know in some ways this this is quite generic in some ways it's like a generic kind of BBC crime serial, but what it does really well is to capture. The way the community, the fractures that remain in the mm. community after those mm. strikes, and also to capture just something about the way in which industrial action and class solidarity has changed. There's such a conscious, it seems like such a conscious contrast between those extraordinary strike scenes, which are just are so amazing and so visceral and so vital, and the present, which is so empty and mm. so haunted. So mm. after after those strike scenes, it's very rare to see a group of people together at all. Mm. It's mainly about characters alone in solitary spaces. Um, the only event that gets people together is a wedding in the first episode but it kind of feels like a funeral mm. like it's very elegiac like mm. all that we see of the wedding is the couple coming out of the church through a graveyard mm. so there's a real sense that like because you know to some extent the strikes didn't really achieve their purpose mm. so the sense that with the failure of the strikes or failure of industrial action public space itself has been diminished and yeah. the public sphere has been diminished so it's it's a very still world. Mm. Like, it's a very quiet world we cut to, full mm. of people who are haunted in different ways by mm. what's happened. Mm. I think that that's really powerful. Like, it it just... That, that contrast... And even even the way it's shot kind of captures that emptiness. So there, there's scenes of characters who'll be looking up at, you know, wind-blowing curtains or shots up to empty spaces. Like, it's like that... It's like... It's like the spaces once occupied by mass action mm. and, you know, large-scale class solidarity are now completely evacuated. Yeah. And the crime kind of takes place mm. in that void. Mm. There's a melancholy vibe here. And Very you get melancholy. that sense when, you know, the forest is, is reclaiming yeah. this land and the scars still remaining, but it's, it's growing over mm. and attempting to regenerate this community. But there's so many vacancies and, and absences and... Mm opportunities obviously have been have been lost and these characters uh, who are now grandparents who were once you know agitating strikers mm. um, are dealing with grappling with the I guess emigration of their families and you know the due to the lack of opportunities in this in this particular particular town so it's it's a it's definitely a an environment haunted by the past 
and that conveys that sense of especially the one very unusual character who's almost stalks the streets like he's a kind of avenging angel is this the grandson yeah so yeah that's interesting he's isn't unemployed it? and it's interesting isn't it because the way it kind of plays out generationally is you have the alan armstrong leslie manville couple who are the original you know strikers mm. then you have their children who kind of say you know you don't see much or, or they're, they're you know the next generation then you have like their kind of grandson or their grandnephew someone mm. who's in the third generation mm. it's, like, it's almost like we see the disaffection of the working class coming back in him but it takes a different form mm. so he we see him reading about like the great reset on his kind of laptop it seems possible he's the person who murdered mm. you know his his uncle or, or his great uncle whoever he is and and he a lot of the iconography around him is kind of as like white terrorist stuff. Mm. So it's like there's this weird adding to the melancholy is this sense that what what was working class solidarity, you know, in the eighties is now the way people are expressing disaffection mm. is is much more individual, yeah, and individual in a very pathological way. Yeah. So you have this, it's like it presents almost like the white terrorist as one possible, the worst possible ancestor of the striker. Like mm. there's still disaffection and anti-authoritarianism and a general sense of frustration. But a lack of collective, yeah, collective solution. And, and so it becomes this monstrous act of individualism. Mm. Um, it's interesting too, like the forest stuff, because obviously there's this kind of Robin Hood stuff going mm. on here. Mm. But like the crime itself is, it seems deliberately incoherent in that respect, right? So the guy who's killed is killed with a crossbow, a bow and arrow, whatever you said. So that's, that's like classic Robin Hood imagery. Mm. And yet he's the most staunch striker of them all. Like, he's actually the man of the people himself. And the last thing he says, actually, before he dies is scab. So we see him leaving the local pub, calling someone a scab because what they did, like, 30 years ago, and then he's killed on his way home. So, mm. you know, so so deeply does he believe in the cause that scab is the last thing he says. And yet he's the one who's killed with this Robin Hood-like imagery. So mm. it just, there's a sense that... And it, it, it kind of makes sense if, if it is his nephew or his, you know, whoever that, that guy is, the stalk, stalking guy, because there's a sense that almost like the melancholy is not just the fractures within the community, but the way in which this moment of working class solidarity has been fractured out of recognition and misappropriated in the present. Mm. Remind me of Ken Loach. Mm, yeah, like, it, like, it, it's it, like it, a Ken, like some of Ken Loach's Yeah, thrillers. it did have the, the characters who, who bore that, that, uh, that weight of history and that it, you see in, in Ken Loach, that put upon working class... But also like something like I feel like it's whether I am Daniel Blake. Like mm. a film like that where you, you have this like in Ken Loach's earlier films, like there is a real sense of a community solidarity. But as you get to Ken Loach's later films and some of Mike Lee's later films too, there's much more of a sense of that solidarity being more elusive mm. and more fleeting. And you have this individual who doesn't feel that kind of primal connection with class they once did, mm. working class individual. So I just feel like it was like a Ken Loach thriller, I thought, in that respect mm. too. Like it's mm. The wind that shakes the barley. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, the only place... Because there's so much emptiness in the show, and the only place the emptiness feels vaguely nurturing are in all those aerial shots of the forest. Mm. Or, or forest mm. of Nottingham, I guess. Like, yeah. Robin Hood's forest. And yet, yeah. and yet the crime takes place on the edge of the forest, too. So mm. it's like it's, it's like... It's like the meaning of the strikes and the meaning of that working-class moment, that defining working-class moment, has become incoherent mm. or... Mm. kind of dissociated in yeah. the present and it's it's like it's like hauntology it's like if hauntology mm. is like mm. being haunted by the futures that never came to pass mm. or might have come to pass it's like the voids and vacuums of the series are like this hauntological space where several generations later the impact of those strikes hasn't produced a better world no for working people no no 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's what's I guess elevates this above a mm. generic BBC crime procedure. Like a mood mood piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that that sense of a lived history mm. that is yeah that is you know resonates through through the generations. Kind of like the anti Billy Elliot. <laughs> Billy Elliot <laughs> yeah. presents. Such, I mean, in Billy Elliot, like you know, Billy Elliot's like it's almost like whether or not the strikes work is absorbed in like that question is absorbed into Billy's dancing career. Mm. And you know, we we. His father has to become a scab, but it's for the sake of sending Billy to dance school. And then mm. that's all resolved, mm. which allows it to be a feel-good film, whereas this is kind of the opposite. Like, not only is it not resolved, it's it becomes more incoherent. Yeah, yeah. And I, this is also a, a series, I, I get a sense that the later episodes will be quite different, quite distinct yes. from the former. More I, procedural. Yep. Um, obviously, you know, uncovering this, mm. this, this legacy, whereas... The, the first episode is more panoramic, isn't mm. it? It's quite, it's world building. It's they've got a lot of aerial shots, got a lot of characters mm. whose relationships to one another are opaque. I mean, it's it's like a series. It's like an episode that is driven by empty space and also by connective tissue. Mm. Like it's all set in the dissonances between people. Mm. The procedural thing makes sense too, because like something we haven't mentioned is there's this cop who's a main character, and in one of the early scenes, he's, like, he's working class, mm. but there's an early scene where he addresses a middle-class audience mm. and you know uses some working-class vernacular in a way that jars a bit with them. Yeah. And it makes you feel like he is going to be the point of connection between the classes. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, like it is, it's a series that takes place like in the broken places mm. between people and between members of a community mm. in a way that is is really powerful. I mean, and look, well, maybe I'm a bit wrong to say it's generic. I mean, it, it, it is generic, but it does really great things with genre. And maybe even the more generic it becomes, like the more procedural it becomes, the more it might just allow that atmosphere to breathe. I think so. I, yeah. Well, it's an effective, mm. such an effective genre for exploring social dislocation, mm. class... Because that detective character has no allegiance necessary to a class, mm. so mobile through the community, you know, mm. in terms of his status as a, you know, as a as a classless mm. man, and also his mobility in just mm. the fact that he's able to insert himself into different lives, and uh, he obviously has roots in this community, he which feel- is somewhat betrayed by his his position now as a senior constable or whatever he is. He has an interesting way of talking about it, doesn't it? I, mean, I don't know if this is now rhetoric in the police force, but he says what's important is policing by consent. Mm. So, mm. you know, it's like he's very keen to bridge the community with yeah. his... There's also, I feel like, because there's so many characters that got a bit confused, but is, is the nephew the suspect the taxi driver? No. Uh, yes, yes. So it feels like that. those are the two poles, right? So mm. you have the police officer who is moving between classes and the way he investigates it, but also mm. the prime suspect is a taxi driver. Yeah. So he's always moving between. They're, they're the only two people who move fluidly between, between the different yeah, parts of the world. Yeah, that's true. Policing, like I said, obviously you know, resonant, resonates with the, the strikes and the notion of collective action and mm. you know, uh, governance by consent. Yeah, which exactly. Is, which is fractured and he's, he's attempting to mend. That's nice. And, yeah, and he's, heal those wounds. It's like he's yeah. in, through his, exactly, like through his policing, he's trying to continue some vestige mm. of those strikes mm. communitarian action mm. which seems all too easily frustrated 2022 as well i i perhaps this is a commentary on modern british it feels uh, like politics it. as well where we have very extreme neoliberal mm. uh, parties in power for, for a decade mm. or very anti-union mm. um, very uh, individualistic and we're starting to see i guess the fraying at the seams of that that mm. community, that society, that economy, and there is—it is, isn't it? And in that light, there is just something so 
just kind of awe-inspiring and incredible about those striking mm. scenes. Like they seem mm. to belong to another world. Absolutely. Um, and the idea that you betray your immediate economic self-interest yeah. out of community, you know, community, that's the sake of the community is just is almost unimaginable. I mean, in that sense, I wonder if the show is almost like an incitement to discourse. So it's kind of mm. like, this is, this is what was possible under Thatcher. Mm. Maybe this is what we need to get to mm. again. Um, it is very, have you seen like Harlan County, USA? That I have not. It's like, it's like, it's like, just like that. Like it just, it reminds me, like just watching it, I'm like, this is, there is nothing more inspiring than seeing people come together for a common cause mm. in that kind of context. Mm. And it's even the distinction between like, there's such a connection between the imagery of those strikes and the kind of grainy handheld footage and then the kind of pellucid crystalline emptiness of mm. the present. Like, mm. it's mm. like the world you're talking about, the kind of, you know, this post-Brexit world is like a, a high-def world. Everything's digitally airbrushed. Everything is immacul- immaculately presented. Mm. But there's an emptiness mm. at the heart, like a vitality at the heart of it. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's haunting, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So what did you think? Were you were you a hard in? Were you a, I'm definitely a, an in. on the fence? I'm in? definitely an in. This feels like a show I might watch with my mum. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's a good... Um, it's it's a only good, six episodes long, yeah. so it's very... Very short. It's a good show to watch with parents just because it is kind of safe mm. watching them, but also because it's, it's kind of their generation. Mm. So it kind of feels like, yeah, it, the, the closest analogy I can think is like if, if Ken Loach or Mike Lee did a, a limited series, mm. it will probably look something like this. Yeah. And I find it really, I find it really compelling. And um, yeah, I, mm. thought it, I thought it was really good. Yeah, it was certainly atmospheric. And yeah. I like the, the resonances yeah. um, between the past and the present, I take, um, I take which that. activates... I guess the the message of this series. I take back what I said about it. But I mean, it's generic in a good way, and mm. it and it, it shows that when you do something a bit more generic, sometimes you can be a bit more experimental than when you just go completely off yeah. the page. So look, yeah, I'm, I'm an in. I thought this was good. Yeah. Mm. All right, onto our archive corner for this week. Now, for this week, I chose a relatively recent series. I am the night. Mm. Uh, it's only a six episode limited television series, uh, created and written by Sam Sheridan. It stars Chris Pine and India Isley, hmm. and it initially premiered on TNT, um, now streaming in, in Australia on Stan. The pilot was directed by Patty Jenkins, so the Chris Pine, Patty Jenkins, hmm. Wonder Woman uh, pairing continues. I feel like the whole thing might be directed by Patty Jenkins, or oh. is it, I think I feel like she had quite a bit to do with the direction. I think Carl Franklin might have been involved as well, oh, so some, some quite serious okay. pedigree that makes sense. behind the directors here. Have we done... Did Carl Franklin do Dharma? He did. Yeah, right. He did. Okay. Yeah, he did. Good, so good television yeah, he's, direction. He's, he's doing some good television direction mm. after directing some, some mm. of the, the best recent neo-noirs. Mm. So consistent with that that genre, the neo-noir genre, and this is why I I really... I was always intrigued to watch it, and then it got pretty mediocre reviews. So I left it mm. behind, and I always thought, oh, maybe I'll return to it. And then I saw it on my on my queue, and I thought, why not? Mm. Why not? So this series was inspired by the memoir, One Day She'll Darken, mm. The Mysterious Beginnings of Fauna Hodel. It was written by Fauna Hodel herself. Oh, wow. Um, and documented her upbringing and her connections to her grandfather, um, who was, as it turned out, one of the prime suspects in the Black Dahlia murder. Mm. So this intersects with a piece of Hollywood uh, history. Uh, there's also a true crime podcast um, that was released as a companion piece Ooh. to this series called Root of Evil. I've got to get on that. Because <laughs> it's one of those cases, those canonical cases, the Black Dahlia, that I haven't you know, in, invest. Sorry, I just uh, knocked over my my uh, you, tribal. You're all at sea ever since that, uh, ever that since doorbell. That doorbell. <laughs> ever since that doorbell. It's I, unsettled you. It, it, it threw it's me deeply, off. Deeply unsettled it threw me you. off my game, man. I, I was going to say, I haven't looked into the Black Dahlia a lot, Um, just partly because 
there seems to be no one canonical book on it. Although mm. I've read the James Elroy. Oh, James That's James incredible, Elroy. That's isn't extraordinary, it? Extraordinary, yeah. But um, yeah, I'm fascinated. Maybe a podcast is the way is the way mm. to go, the point of entry into mm. the case. Yeah. Uh, so the, this pilot is quite has quite an unusual structure. It features two characters who appear to be very peripheral mm. to uh, the main action that I guess this this uh, series later centres on, um, and the two are. Uh, Stringer journalist Jay Singletary, who's played by Chris Pine, mm. who's working his way through a series of, you know, demeaning assignments. Um, he's basically a, he's an ex-serviceman. Uh, he's basically close to self-harm, mm. and he's really operating at the the periphery of uh, of Hollywood, attempting to to take pictures of people, mm. sell them to the the gossip rags. He's he's really good in this. But yeah, he's, I, he's, I really liked his. This presence. is unusual. He normally plays a quite a bland, matinee mm. idol type role, whereas mm. here he plays a single, like a, a sleazy, uh, you know, subterranean journalist um, who's operating that scandal mag. So a bit of vibes of LA Confidential. It's funny. I was just gonna just generally like you know, there's been so much. You know, night noir pastiche in the last ten years. Mm. You know, Gangster Squad being one of the lowest points. <laughs> yeah. This was actually a show that I thought really captured the feel of noir at times, mm. and I felt like you know, obviously there's some modern twists on the character, but I thought the Chris Pine character genuinely felt like a noir character, yeah, like yeah. genuinely felt like transplanted from like nineteen. Mm. You know, mm. well, it's set. It's set later in the forties, but he, he had that real. I thought it really worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's has those. You know, he's like he's. Uh, a photographer who later becomes something of a de facto private detective mm. as he's embroiled in this mm. in this uh, you know controversy around the Hodel family. Mm. So the other strand of this involves the biracial teenager um, who is Fauna, um, who's been raised without knowing her her birth parents or even her her birth race. Uh, in an obscure town in Nevada. Mm. So most of this pilot actually takes place very much on the periphery of Hollywood. I was going to say... And we're gradually almost a kind of uh, you know, centripetal structure, or centrifugal mm. structure, where we're slowly you know, circle in to the, the locus of where this crime is, and in particular the you know, economic locus that is represented by uh, Dr. George Hodel, who's a Hollywood insider, lives in an opulent mansion mm. in... Los Angeles. I was going to say one of just structurally one of the extraordinary things I think about this pilot. Like we live, we live in a time now where true crime is so monetized, right? Like where mm. every show, like you have a show that's called Monster Jeffrey Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I mean, no, <laughs> no shade on the show, but like the title is so like really wants you to know it's about Jeffrey Dahmer, oh, right? Absolutely. So what I think is kind of extraordinary about this text, you know, from just even a couple of years earlier, is that. If you didn't know it was about the Black Dahlia yeah. and you weren't really au fait with the case and the prime suspects, you wouldn't know from the pilot. It, it certainly buries the lead. Yeah, there's no mention of the Black Dahlia at all. No. And there's no, you know, like there's no particular, like there's no particular discussion of, because this, this is all taking place after the Black Dahlia, mm. like, you know, what, 15, 20 years after mm. the Black Dahlia. There's no discussion mm. of Hodel being a prime suspect. Yeah. So it's outside the, the prime terrain of noir and it's not shot like yeah. a noir, it's shot like a kind of film soleil. Yeah, but I, I feel, and we'll come back to that, I feel like it feels like noir mm. at times. Um, or at least like that, that neo-noir Chinatown era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's just interesting, right, that, you know, for a show that is based, like, basically the core of it is a Black Dahlia. It's not, it's, I mean, I like that about it. Like, I like that it approaches the crime in such an oblique, distant mm. way. And mm. I feel like the whole aesthetic of the show captures that. Like, the opening scenes, there's all these huge shots across like long vistas and long tracking shots and you know there's like all these windy kind of scenes and you know, like it, it, you have a real sense that we're 
approaching the Black Dahlia case from kind of vast distances. Mm. And the Black Dahlia case is at this kind of confluence of cosmic forces. Mm. It's a bit like Elroy's novel. And, I, there's, and for a case that is so unsolved and so resonant and so pregnant with meaning, there's something so powerful about approaching it from a long way away. Mm. It's, mm. It reminds me you know, in a kind of indirect way of Twin Peaks The Return. Like when yeah. Twin Peaks The Return came out, you know, the events of Twin Peaks themselves felt so unimaginably pregnant with meaning 25 years later that it was still something incredible about the fact that the show expanded its canvas massively mm. we, we approach it from a distance mm. I, I, I like that about this I think this. that's the only way you can really approach this crime well I agree well and I guess so much is unknown so much is speculation and the, the, the old the main kind of attempt to do the opposite, which was the Brian De Palma, Black Dahlia adaptation. Mm. Well, in a way, it tried to do the same as well. Like, it had this big narrative that gradually converged on the Black Dahlia, but I didn't think it worked as well. No, no. So, for I think this is a beautiful way to do it, to have, like, a TV series, albeit a limited series. It starts in a place that seems completely unrelated to the Black Dahlia mm. and then gradually moves, like, across these kind of cosmic distances mm, towards it. Mm. I really liked that about it. I thought it was really evocative. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think that the, the tropes as well, the Chris Pine character mm. is that slightly sleazy, you know, Hollywood outsider, um, is done quite quite effectively. This actually, um, being a 2019 series, reminded me a lot, of, a lot of Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood, yeah. The Tarantino, um, you know, Noir, pastiche, well, both about you know, meta, metafictional, you know, depiction of this era, and both about canonical true crime, yeah, incidents, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like the two parts of the show are so different, but in a way that works. Like I feel like the Chris Pine stuff is noir, mm. whereas it feels like the stuff with um, Fauna is kind of like melodrama. Mm. Like there's the a scene where her mother talks about her racial heritage, a very long conversation. It's pure melodrama. Like it reminds me of like. You know, like imitation of life, yeah, or Douglas Sirk, like yeah. that that anxiety of uh, about race and about femininity. Mm. I mean, it's like, and again, like the it, it, the the show feels kind of sutured in two, mm. but it's really evocative in that mm. respect. I mean, mm. also because like, I mean, it's basically it's a passing narrative mm. for the fauna character, like she's passing for white. Mm. So on the one hand, you have her trying to integrate these two parts of herself, like the black heritage and the white heritage, like to pull them together. And yet we also know that the series about the Black Dahlia case in which a woman's body was fractured and torn apart. Mm. So you have on the one hand this woman in melodrama who's trying to put her body together and understand it. You know, it's her racial heritage. But then we have this noir bit which is, you know, is all about a woman's body that's been pulled apart mm. and that's been dissected. Mm. So it's mm. like... And you, you see that as well in the iconography things. of the show mm. where there's lots of scenes in morgues, yeah. um, you know, involving you know, bodies that are quite disfigured. Mm. Um, Chris Pine's character is brutalised at different points. Mm. Um, seems, you know, he's an addict, mm. so he's alienated from his own body. Well, it, it's very corporeal. And it's interesting, like, it made me think, like, it's obviously there's something in there about passing for white and violence to white women. And it just, it, it kind of made me, it, it reminded me, I remember, like, to, like it, it, it made me think, like, it, it's part of what the series is saying, that at times of racial anxiety... And when this anxiety is about racial contamination, one of the ways it manifests itself is like over-regulating the white female body. Mm. It's like, so it might be like, you know, when J.K. Rowling got really nuts about trans women was just after Black Lives Matter. I mm. remember thinking like, Black Lives Matter is happening. Why, why are you obsessed with this? Mm. But the two mm. feel like two sides of the same coin, like in, in a weird way. So you have this moment when you've got this upsurge in like 
black visibility and then the way someone like Rowling responds is to double down on what it means to be a white woman. Mm, so I do, it mm. felt like the series is saying, and narratively it almost suggests that Hodel's anxieties or feelings about having a mixed-race granddaughter and his possible dissection of the Black Dahlia are, are two sides of the same coin. Mm, so it's just interesting. Mm. Like It's such an, on the face of it, such an unusual pairing of the Black Dahlia narrative with this passing narrative. But it's... It's really interesting, like, the more you think mm, about it. Mm, mm. It's, yeah, I, I it's think it's really a really interesting approach to the, to the yeah. case. Yeah, like you said, obliquely. It's an oblique series. I like that. I mean, I, I was going to say, have, have you seen Halloween Ends yet? I have not. I saw it in the weekend. It was just, it's interesting. I won't give too much away, but, like, the first... It's similar. Because the Michael Myers thing is so massive, for the first two-thirds, it approaches Michael Myers very gradually. I've heard that. You don't even, see, you don't even <laughs> see him for 45 minutes. And there's something incredible about that, which I feel it's the same here. Like, it gets at the way to deal with the mythology is to look at it side on. Mm. And like, I know it's like, but I just thought there were some moments that were pure noir. So this, this is a bit of a spoiler, but there's a bit where she's going to visit Hodel, you know, in LA. Mm. And she stops at a bus stop and this kindly but strange old man, slightly hokey, talks to her, asks where she's going. Mm. And then later on, we realise that was her grandfather. You know, he's just checking her out before she meets him yeah. in disguise. I can't articulate it, but there was something about that scene to me that was pure noir. Mm. Like it's just something about the kind of luridness, the the kind of deception. I don't know. Yeah. There, just, there were moments here I was like, this show, it really gets noir. Yeah. Like it's not just empty pastiche. So, there's a lot of characters, you know, women, uh, you know, flight, fleeing yes. from something, fleeing yes. From, yes. from domesticity. They drive by night yeah. kind there's, of feel. There's a lot yeah. of scenes in, you know, transient spaces like bus stops yeah like beaches highways yeah, yeah beaches yeah. Uh, service stations yeah yeah it has that has that that Fugi- imaginary the yeah. noir imaginary which is digging it's it's digging deep from it's like fugitive yeah. people who are in a, in a fugitive yeah, state fugitive state which is yeah. not yeah exactly that's exactly what it is yeah the Chris Pine character is, is down in his luck he's, he's a downwardly mobile journalist she's passing for white she's escaping her hometown there's, there's that sense of people People fleeing, crossing paths in the night. Yeah. That kind yeah, of feeling. Yeah. And these characters are not actually brought together until the very end of yeah. the pilot and only via telephone. Mm. So that there's lines of flight only just tangentially intersect mm. just right at the very end. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought, yeah, exactly. It, yeah, and that, that is really elegant too, right? That it's not, it doesn't belabor the connection between the two mm. stories. They're just, it's like two completely different. Mm. It's just something about the, the improbability, but also the absolute aptness of these two stories coming mm. together mm. is such a resonant place to start for a Black mm. Dahlia narrative. Mm. So you, you were saying that you watched other episodes of this, and there are only six, so yeah, did you so not get through so, all so This was back in the day when, like, I, I had this kind of... I had this OCD thing where I was like, we've got to watch five episodes of any show before we know if we like it or not. <laughs> but this one, I think we only got through three for some reason. Yeah, it was, it was just one of those things where... I can't remember why we like we didn't dislike it. It was mm. just other stuff kind of happening. Mm. Mm. But yeah, like I, I remember it continuing to be good. Mm. Yeah, there was no reason for not watching it. Yeah. it just it just kind of yeah. fell off the it radar. It didn't get much critical adulation. No, it disappeared really without a trace mm. in the the general wash of TV series that have come out in the last couple of years. But I feel like yeah, like for a show like again like there's just, there's so much empty noir pastiche. This was a show that. I just, I just, I thought it really worked. Mm. Part of you wonder is like whether, you know, like in the independent films in the 1970s mm. or noirs in the 1930s and 1940s, such an abundance of such a richness of series coming in the pipeline, whether these will be really dis- rediscovered in 20 years. Mm. It'll be looked back on as like this golden age of scripted drama and there's all these series that are just completely lost to history are, are rediscovered. Well, and, exactly. Like, yeah. if, like, are these like the B movies of our time? Yeah, like, I, the I thing feel that like people... they are. I feel like this is an example of, 
you know, a limited series that may mm. well be rediscovered and treasured. And I wonder by if those in twenty years from now. I hence. wonder. I wonder if the Watcher is a bit in that category too, because it's obviously mm. hugely popular now, but not mm. critically acclaimed. Mm. But I'm sure there were many B noirs that everyone went to see. Yeah. And years to come, people will watch it and. Yeah. This yeah. is the new cultural detritus that's going to be uh. you know, treasured twenty years hence. It's so funny, and in terms of that detritus, I mean, it, it also this series captures me such a distinct period in television i'll be at the tail end of it like i actually date it from when we moved into stanmore there was a period by analogy remember with the period when we were watching a lot of films in 2007 old films we had to get in on interlibrary loan mm. like you know we talked about this in the podcast laser disc vhs you know very poor dvd transfers then 10 years later they were all available mm. on dvd there was a period in about 2012 to 2016 2017 where because quite obsessive TV watcher there was a lot of stuff I just had to find online because mm. it wasn't available anywhere in Australia and this was one of them just ha- I remember having to find it oh really yeah like really hard to find at the time if I'm remembering right then all of a sudden it's all available mm. so that kind of that sense of it being like detritus I especially associate with the weird patch where like between the golden age of DVDs and the golden age of streaming when Australia was like mm. I mean imagine imagine explaining to the current generation of youth that like there was a time when Game of Thrones couldn't be watched legally in Australia. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or like yeah. to the next generation, there's a time when Breaking Bad or like when the Americans was like two seasons behind in Australia. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah, weird patch between like, yeah, between mm. peak DVD, I associate with this kind of show, yeah. this kind of detritus. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. that liminal time. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, so I love this. And it's actually kind of inspired my archive choice for next week. I love the... um. I just love the noir vibes and the LA vibes. We're going to be going back to LA, but it's a bit of a different spin. <laughs> it's a sitcom, isn't it? <laughs> uh, almost. We're going to be doing Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh, so reality I've got, TV. I, I've, I, it's funny, like, I'm not a huge reality guy, but I've, and it's funny, we'll talk about this next week. Um, you know, we watch a show every week with my friend Jesse, um, um, Carl and Jesse, and we, we, we go to the Kardashians ago, and I, mm. I, didn't, I didn't really get it. Like, I didn't find it that charismatic, that interesting, but Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fascinating it's, it's very embedded in hollywood so okay. one of the characters is kelsey grammer's wife oh, kelsey okay. grammer's in it there's a great opening where kelsey grammer's like i've had my time in the spotlight it's her turn <laughs> um two of the characters are like child actors from the 70s so oh, they're okay. in like return to witch mountain little house in the prairie police woman so actually i mean it is it, it has got that enjoyably trashy call but it's also very embedded in hollywood okay. so okay we're gonna nice. be it's, it's i think this is my first reality show i've suggested i think so, I yeah. think so. nice to see you branching out into branching different out into reality and i think just be a fun one to suggest so next week we'll um go from i am the night to real housewives of beverly hills <laughs> hey same city yep exactly um i'm billy i'm drew that was pilot club <laughs>